Hey, everyone. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today, I have with me Dr. Michael W. Beck, professor at University of California, Santa Cruz, and co-author of The Global Flood Protection Benefits of Mangroves in Scientific Reports. So thank you for being here, Mike. Glad to be here, Ross. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. One of my colleagues sent me a summation of this paper that you co-authored, and it was in phys.org's Research Shows Mangrove Conservation Can Pay for Itself in Flood Protection, which, you know, that's a title that will get our attention. So I just want to dive into this. We haven't done nearly as much content about mangroves and blue carbon as we should. So what broadly is happening in the science of mangroves? What, what is moving currently? Yeah, well, Ross, if you don't mind my saying, let me start by saying, well, thanks uh, for, for being on the show uh, or inviting me on the show. And we're working on mangroves on a couple of different fronts. The primary work that we're doing is looking at the flood risk reduction benefits of mangroves. These are what are also their climate adaptation benefits to people. So that's a that's a really big focus of my group in the in the Coastal Resilience Lab. Uh, we do collaborate quite a bit with others who are working on some of these blue carbon benefits, as you say, that is the, the, the carbon mitigation benefits. So we've been helping them as well to value some of those benefits, but our real expertise is in, is in valuing these adaptation benefits. Indeed. And what, what are the adaptation benefits of mangroves? I guess people in general, when they speak about mangroves, they tend to get really excited because there are so many benefits to preserving or even restoring uh, mangroves. So what adaptation benefits might there be? Yep. So the, the, the principal adaptation benefits uh, that we're looking at are what is their value in reducing flooding? And that's flooding from storms and even in some cases uh, from tsunamis. So obviously coastal risks are rising rapidly. Uh, that has a lot to do with increasing storminess, sea level rise, uh, but also quite frankly with our coastal development patterns as well. So we are putting more people and property in harm's way uh, and habitats like mangroves and coral reefs can provide some protection to these folks. And we've been trying to put a really rigorous value on what that coastal protection benefit is. So that is how important are keeping your mangroves in place for reducing waves from storms and reducing that storm surge and thereby reducing the amount of flooding and erosion that, that comes on shore. And we've been doing that at very many levels uh, in our team, from very site-based levels to national levels, like in the Philippines and Jamaica, but then also globally, which is what uh, the new study shows, where we do really rigorous 
engineering and economic modeling to understand the benefits of mangroves. And we show that every year, mangroves reduce the costs of flooding by $65 billion. And that's a reduction in flooding to more than 15 million people. Again, every year around the world, 59 countries around the world. Well, how much would it cost to do mangrove conservation in those areas such that it is paying for itself? Is it pretty much equivalent to the benefit that it provides monetarily or is it uh, disparate? Well, first of all, you have to, uh, you know, it's not surprising to, to know that there's a lot of variation in these benefits all around the world. So in places where mangroves um, are right in the middle of storm belts, you know, where storms come across impacting people and where there's a lot of people and property behind those mangroves, then they're providing really significant benefits in those areas. We mapped all of these benefits. We are doing this level of engineering and economic analysis every kilometer using industry standard models from engineering and insurance, every kilometer we estimate this flooding, and that's for 700,000 kilometers of coastline on which mangroves occur. And across all of those 700,000 kilometers, you do find a lot of variation in those benefits, again, just because of variation in where mangroves, people, property, storms all occur together. And so in some sections, we summarize our results into 20-kilometer coastal study units. That makes it just a lot easier to be able to visualize the results. But in many of those, uh, just in a 20-kilometer section, there will be $100 million of benefit every year in flood risk reduction. Okay, so that's a, um, a huge amount in these sections of coastline. Mangrove restoration, depending upon where you are in the world, can vary from costing somewhere around twenty to $30,000 per hectare in the Caribbean to maybe two to $4,000 per hectare if you're in Southeast Asia. And so when you're talking about uh, offering hundreds of millions of dollars in protections on coastlines for thousands to tens of thousands of dollars in upfront costs for restoration, well, you're receiving benefits that are, uh, you know, in some places, 10 to 1 uh, in terms of benefit to cost ratios. Wow. Okay. That's good to know about the differences depending on geography and density and all of that. bit of a basic question, Mike, which is when I think about a mangrove, I'm thinking about you know, trees that are in standing water on the coast. So maybe this is brackish water. That's a mix of salt water and fresh water. Maybe it's just even in salt water. Maybe it's only in fresh water. So there's, there's that. But then also when I'm thinking about flooding coming in, I'm thinking about why a mangrove might help. Does it just slow the rate at which this water is inundating? Uh, does it do something else? I'm asking this because, one, I don't know, but I imagine some listeners out there have heard a lot about mangroves, but maybe this this basic question has eluded them as it has me. Yep. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, uh, you've got it right in terms of uh, where mangroves occur. So mangroves occur in intertidal environments in salt water. So that's where they really uh, uh, dominate. And they're in 
mainly tropical areas. So basically in our temperate areas, you know, like say on the U.S. East Coast, you have marshes in that intertidal saltwater habitat. And then about midway down Florida coast, uh, they start to give way to, to mangrove. So those two types of species, groups of species, occupy that kind of same niche, as it were, one in temperate, one in tropical environments. And these wetlands work in very similar ways, although, as, as I'll explain, mangroves work even better than marshes uh, in terms of reducing flooding. And that's because the way that they work is that, first off, they provide almost like a wall. I mean, if, you, if you've ever tried to walk through a mangrove forest, like a dense mangrove forest, it is nearly impossible. And that's not just because of the mud. I mean, if you've ever, I mean, that mud is actually the carbon benefit. All the accumulated sediment underneath those mangroves is where all of that carbon is stored. Um, uh, it's impossible to get through them because of that, but also because it's this huge tangle of roots and stems and trunks. And that creates a wall for incoming surge. So when you have an incoming surge, a big, um, essentially, you can think of it as a, a bulb of water, like as if you were pushing in your bathtub and, uh, you know, uh, you're pushing that big ball of water. That mangrove then serves almost like a dam. I mean, works in many ways like a seawall or something like it. So in the first instance, it's holding back a lot of water that would otherwise flood onto land. And then as some of that water passes through, um, uh, it's also got waves associated with it. And the mangroves are actually helping to, uh, let's say, bat down those waves. So they're working on both waves and surge. And that's exactly what salt marshes do uh, on the East Coast or uh, other temperate areas all around the world. Uh, but of course, mangroves can grow bigger and in many ways even denser uh, than, than marshes. So they can work on really quite substantial surge and flooding. Great. Thank you for explaining that. You mentioned carbon, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I'm wondering, specifically for adaptation benefits and protecting coastlands from inundation or from storms, who might be funding mangrove conservation and restoration? What's happening now? Are any new players entering the scene? How are people thinking about this currently? Yep. That's a very, very important question and one that uh, we're working on a lot with many groups of folks. So, but the real the real key to all of the kind of new partnerships that I'm going to describe is being able to rigorously value these benefits. That is put people and dollar values uh, in ways that follow industry standards. Because once we can do that, then we can open up a whole variety of new funding and policy streams and different kinds of economic incentives once you can talk in the same terms uh, with businesses, uh, with ministries of finance and others. So, for example, we're working uh, with folks like the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. So after the, the hurricanes in 2017, for example, there was nearly $100 billion uh, appropriated for recovery. Well, most of that is going to end up recovering gray infrastructure, including gray defenses like seawalls and dikes, 
Because in order to access that funding, you have to be able to prove that you can offer benefit to cost ratios greater than one. That is, you can value the flood protection benefits in the same terms as they would for a grade defense. And that's what we can now do with mangroves. So we're working to help ensure that funding from those kinds of disaster recovery sources goes into not just gray infrastructure, but green infrastructure. And in the same way, we're working with insurance companies and we're coming up and insuring, making sure, uh, rather, that mangroves are considered in some of their risk models so that they get accounted for in terms of the benefits that they're providing. And in parallel with some work in coral reefs, we're coming up with actually some new insurances themselves. So I'm going to give you an example from the the coral reef off of Mexico, but it's one that we're now looking to apply into mangroves as well. And that is there is a new insurance policy for the reef off of the coasts of, of Cancun and South that recognizes the value of that reef for reducing flooding to the Mexican people and to the hotels that drive the economy along that coastline. So if a storm damages that reef, there is now an opportunity to receive an insurance payout to rebuild that reef for the protections that it offers. Wow. And the the fulcrum that this happened around was because they were able to effectively price the, the value of the ecosystem service that this reef was providing to these hotels and the people who lived in the area? Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it, Ross. Wow. How do you do such a thing? Because people are sometimes critical of placing prices on something like a coral reef. Shouldn't we just value this inherently? But I guess if you're not doing that, then policy and commerce just doesn't recognize it so you're you're you're, you've effectively translated the value into something that (laughs) entities can understand uh, beyond just the biophilia or some such yeah well indeed uh before uh, i became a, a research professor here at uc santa cruz i was for 20 years the lead marine scientist at the nature conservancy so i fully believe in protecting these habitats for their intrinsic value um, uh, because they're amazing, they're beautiful, they're supporting uh, species and biodiversity in addition now to the services that we can value uh, from them. So uh, again, that's what, what I believe, but I also understand why decision makers are in tough spots and they need to protect people and they need to show that they're, they're protecting those folks. And in order to do that, we really did need to value them in some of the same terms to essentially bring these additional stakeholders to the table, uh, which is really critical. And, you know, I want to say a very important part of the approach that we took in all of this is that many ecologists and conservationists kind of develop their own models about these, these services and benefits, and then they take them to the insurance companies or the World Bank or FEMA and say, hey, look at the models we developed about their values and benefits. You should accept these because uh, they're really, really important. Uh, instead, the approach that we took was we went with some engineering collaborators and others, went to these institutions like the insurers uh, and the World Bank and said, 
What models do you use to value flood risk reduction and adaptation benefits? Okay, because we're going to take your models and then we're going to figure out how to put mangroves and reefs into your models so that when the results are all done, they're actually yours. Um, uh, they're not something that you have to accept all of our models in the first place to do. And this was critically important in the much more rapid acceptance of these kinds of values into decision-making. That does seem very important. And I can see why that would appeal to them and, you know, accepting their priors and then running with it. Yeah. You don't you can skip that entire fight over the models. Very clever. I, I can see why you uh, have had success with this. And, it, and it's, it's harder. I mean, you know, look to, 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 to be fair, you have to sit there, you have to understand uh, fully their models. You have to go, Okay, what are the different ways we can fit? This isn't maybe the way if I was just designing it from scratch, I would have done. But again, when you when you come out the back end uh, of all of that work, then they understand exactly what happened. Great. Thanks for explaining. I find that very uh, compelling. How does this interact with the carbon value of mangroves? Does that stack on top? Uh, are people still working on the financing? And then just broadly, if you happen to know, Mike, what is the potential for mangroves to, to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store them in, in some way, if you can give us some back of the envelope estimate of this? Yep. And again, I'll uh, I'll preface this, Ross, with, uh, you know, I do a bit of work uh, on carbon mitigation with mangroves there. Um, uh, that is my, my greatest area of expertise, but I do I do know quite a bit, I hope to inform. And uh, a couple of things that are important here and which tie these mitigation and adaptation benefits together is that, well, there is a lot of work on pricing these carbon sequestration benefits from forests and then mangroves uh, in particular. Uh, and so there is a, a very active marketplace for that. And because there's that active marketplace and there are now increasingly well-developed standards for measuring carbon sequestration by mangroves, we're now working with some groups to develop parallel standards for accounting for what we will call their resilience benefits, these flood risk reduction benefits that can parallel the standards uh, for these mitigation benefits. And the way that mangroves really work in, in carbon mitigation and why they're really so important for this benefit is that the carbon that's being sequestered is not just in the trunks of the trees. That's where you kind of, uh, when you're talking about forests, you're typically talking about all of this carbon being sequestered in the trunks. They're also extraordinarily good at uh, essentially accumulating sediments underneath the mangrove. So trapping all of these sediments that are coming down from rivers and all of the leaf litter coming out of the trees. And that's all carbon being piled up and stored very rapidly in mangrove environments. Mangroves are incredibly good at building land. And that building land is carbon being sequestered, as well as then offering additional flood risk reduction benefits. Wow. Do you have a sense of the scale or what we might anticipate from, I imagine if there are additional ways of financializing and encouraging mangrove conservation and restoration that uh, more than just the carbon benefit financing this, we might just see 
mangroves overall expanding and being more protected. So do you have any sense of like how many gigatons are being stored there or might be stored in the future? Is this just too far outside of your ken? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be able to give you the very best answer on uh, how much what the what the gigatons potential is, I'm, I'm afraid. What I can say is that there is a lot of increasing awareness of the value of both of these benefits, the mitigation and these adaptation or flood risk reduction benefits. And in part, because of that, you've seen a lot of slowing of mangrove loss um, and then a lot of very successful restoration efforts uh, around the globe. And so that's saying that people are really, I mean, just even at a broad level, before you get into the exact dollar values, that they're recognizing some of these values and benefits. And now by being able to really tie some dollar values to that, both on the sequestration uh, and on this flood risk reduction side, we can open up new markets and really, I hope and I, and I actually truly believe, really expand mangrove habitats around the world. Wow. Well, where can people learn more if they want to dive into this topic? Uh, well, they can learn a lot from, from our website. It's uh, coastalresilience.ucsc.edu. And from there, you can find uh, some of our papers, some of the maps and tools that we provide for exploring these results and, uh, you know, even uh, some of our op-eds and blogs. Great. And the paper and the article that I referenced at the beginning of the show are also in the show notes if you'd like to follow up. Dr. Beck, thank you so much for being here. Ross, really appreciate the opportunity. It's my pleasure. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.